0: The ISO with Dan Dickow and SB Live Sports, brought to you by the Believe Podcast Network, the number one podcast network for professionals.
1: Here's Dickow from the
0: deep corner. for right. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. It's all now. Downtown Dan
1: Connection. Every morning when I'm working out, I'm listening to your podcast, Keep Up the Great Work.
0: I mean, I've seen Dan Dickow hit some big shots
1: in the NCAA
0: tournament. I got to salute you, man. Like, I've been watching you since I was in high school, trying to mimic all your moves. Another episode of The ISO with myself, your host, Dan Dickow for SB Live Sports. And to me, this is a guest that I'm really looking forward to hearing a little bit more about his background, how he became great at what he does. He's an award-winning author. He's won a Pulitzer Prize for his writing, Jeffrey Marks. Jeffrey, thank you so much for joining. How is life, I believe, on the East Coast, if I'm not mistaken?
1: Well, first of all, my pleasure. Great to be with you. Um, I have followed your career for so long, and we've corresponded a a little bit uh, through the years. Never had a chance to meet, but this is really neat to be able to do this with you, so thank you. And actually, I'm in Louisiana, in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Um, I, I did move here years ago from Washington, D.C., so I've spent most of my adult life on the East Coast, but now I'm uh, this is my adopted homeland in Baton Rouge, Louisiana.
0: So quick side note on, on Louisiana. I had my best uh, professional season of, of basketball for the Hornets in New Orleans, but my favorite player of all time is a legend in Baton Rouge, Pistol Pete Maravich, because of the way he played the game, but then also his faith and how he lived it out after he, he found – uh, his calling in life when he was done playing. So uh, have you ever come across any great Pistol Pete stories living down there?
1: Um, I have had the chance to meet his family. Um, very kind people. A dear friend of mine is a man named Dale Brown, who was the LSU basketball coach for many years. And uh, through Dale, I had a chance to meet the family. So I really enjoyed that. And look, uh, Pistol Pete, there are there are not many names as big as his in the state of Louisiana. Uh, I don't know that any are bigger, there may be a few that equal obviously in uh, recent years, the name Joe burrow is pretty big around here. And there are a few other Shaquille O'Neal through the years, but uh, yeah pistol Pete's the man and that's why it's called the Pete Maravich Assembly Center that's where LSU still plays its games.
0: Yeah, hopefully my broadcasting career can take me there at some point, uh, and I can get a chance to kind of uh, walk around that arena and, and take in. I'm sure they've got a number of, uh, of plaques and memorials for him and his career, but um, great side note to, to our start of our conversation. So as mentioned, you're an award-winning author. I'm always interested in how people get to do what they love to do. I was lucky enough to, to you know, play at the highest level in it was based off of work ethic and love for the game and continuing to grow and work at it. For you as a great author, did you always have the love for
1: writing or, or how did that grow to be? I always had the love for reading and writing. And uh, I can take that, uh, my memory of it goes back as far as third grade. I'm sure it started before that, but I was, uh, it's hard to think of a, a third grader as being a prolific reader, but I was, I loved books. And uh, I remember my third grade teacher, Miss Kenny, I remember learning about books from her and about writing from her. And uh, and I knew as early as third grade, I still laugh with my friends about this all the, these years later, but as early as third grade, I can remember wanting to write a book. So I know that's a little weird. I'll even share with you a little bit embarrassing all these years later, but yes, for uh, Halloween in third grade, I dressed up as a sports book. So. uh there you have it that's my uh, fortunately there were not cell phones back then so there are no photos of this that exist uh so i can still walk this world with some kind of dignity uh without it being taken away by a picture such as that floating around so yeah but loved reading loved writing and always knew it's something i wanted to do
0: you know i've uh i was a grew up in an era where there was still no social media. There was still, you know, the internet was was not around until probably I was about seventh grade. Eighth grade was the first time I ever saw the internet. So every morning I would have to grab the newspaper, flip through, read the box score of the teams that I was following, read the articles, uh, go to the library, get different books um, right. to learn, to kind of culminate and grow my love for basketball. Were there books that really kind of spurred your love of reading and writing or what was it for you that really kind of set you on that path
1: yeah well both of my parents loved reading as well so there were just always books around the house but as far as being that young and getting into reading the hardy boys i remember reading those books when i was a kid i loved them i devoured them and then other than those uh, books it was really anything related to sports you know, I used to pick up books at the library in Port Chester, New York, where I grew up. The uh, public library there was incredible, and I remember what a, what a treat it was the first time as a young boy I was able to actually get a library card instead of just use my parents. Uh, I loved all that stuff, and, and anything with childhood sports uh, you know, related to it, I was a huge New York Mets fan growing up in New York, so I remember reading books about Tom Seaver and the Mets. I was a huge Knicks fan, so you might be familiar with the book Rocking Steady with Walt Clyde Frazier from back in the 70s, oh. all these things. I loved it. It didn't matter as long as it had something to do with sports and especially New York sports when I was young and then got into some other things after that.
0: So if, if it was New York sports, you mentioned Tom book for the Mets. Were you Mets, Yankees, or were the Giants even still around at that time or had they already moved to San Francisco?
1: Well, thanks, Dan. I'm not old enough. You got to make me feel even older, right? No, <laughs> I apologize. I'm I'm still learning my chronological no, order thing. The Giants thing. were already in San Francisco. Uh, I was all Mets, and I'll go so far as to say anti-Yankees, which really? growing up in New York, you were either one or the other. You really yeah. wanted both. And then uh, for football, I was Giants, New York Giants, until I was an 11-year-old boy and got into the Baltimore Colts. And uh, basketball I was always the New York Knicks at Madison Square Garden, man, I have some amazing memories of that as a kid that was that was just a joy I I was a basketball nut as as you were. Uh, I was never <laughs> nearly as talented as you but I loved the game. It was my favorite thing to do. Uh, in fact, my two favorite things to do were play basketball and, and read. So there's a
0: step in a process to every career. Obviously, you've got to work the fundamentals. You've got to get better at things. Uh, education and getting your your high school diploma, your college degree typically has something to do with that. But as an author, what are the steps to actually getting a full fledged, you know, whether it's 200, 250 page book put together and then getting it to the steps where it gets published? Um, how does that all
1: work? Well, for me, it was a long process. It took years to even get to the point where I wanted to explore that. It started with work as a reporter for newspapers. And then from there, doing some freelance magazine work. Uh, And then from there, I was finally able to pursue my dream, which was to do a book. I was really fortunate uh, as a young man uh, in my 20s. I was able to meet uh, Carl Lewis, then uh, great Olympic champion uh, in track and field. And through someone that worked with Carl and, and a literary agent that I was connected with in New York, uh, Carl and I had a meeting, it went fantastically well. Literally had a meeting in the morning and by lunchtime, we were at lunch writing on the back of you know, on napkins, like, you know, you hear about people doing, but we just connected that way. We were very comfortable working with each other. And that led to my first book with Carl. And so um, that was such an incredible experience. Um, because it was something I had always wanted to do, but also because uh, Carl and I and our families became so close. I got to experience the world uh, traveling with him, uh, probably 12 or 15 countries during that year, as we worked on the research and writing of his book, uh, because track and field is such an international sport. So for me, that was an unusual process. That wasn't the normal way to do a first book, Um, but because of who Carl was and because it was really his book, we had the opportunity to do it that way. I think for a younger generation, the name
0: Carl Lewis doesn't resonate for, for someone like my age. So uh, I was born in 1978. I believe his wheelhouse was 1984 Olympics in LA, if I, don't, if I remember correctly, in maybe 88. How big of a superstar was he at that time?
1: Well, to put in perspective, uh, he, he made five Olympic teams from 1980 wow. through 1996. The 80 team was a boycott team. So his first Olympics he competed in was 84 and he competed in four events and he won four gold medals. He went on to win a total of nine uh, gold medals and uh, in in those four Olympics ending in Atlanta in 96. And he ended up being named um, the International Olympic Committee's athlete of the century, uh, was also similarly honored by Sports Illustrated. So yeah, he had an incredible career uh successful in every way as an Olympic champion as an athlete as a competitor uh, but that's not the Carl that I know. Of course that's part of who I know. Uh, for me uh, the things I saw Carl do away from the stadiums around the world really impressed me a lot more even than who he was as an athlete.
0: Yeah it sounds like that was a great opportunity to go from working in in journalism sections of newspapers to writing a book with a transcendent athlete, how do you come up with, or did you come up with other ideas for your book, knowing that i want to get into season of life next, which is one of the most impactful books I've ever read. But how do we, how do
1: you come up with the ideas for, for books? For me, it's taken all shapes and forms. I've done six books and each one has been very different. Um, one thing that I have learned is that The ones that I end up enjoying the most, maybe learning the most from, and ending up on these incredible journeys are the ones that I never set out to write. Or if I did, they change so much in the process from what I initially envisioned. So I like to think of it as a blank notebook. Um, I may have a general idea of what is I'm exploring, but the less uh, rigid I am going into it, I, I find it works a whole lot better. So. A couple of the books, including the one you referred to, Season of Life, I didn't set out to do it. It just kind of happened to me. And I'm not the brightest guy in North America. I think I've proven that enough over the years. But even I realized when I experienced uh, what I saw with Joe Orman and Biff Poggi and those boys on that football field in Baltimore, I just I knew that was something I needed to write about.
0: How long does a typical book take and how many, I guess,
1: rough drafts or versions do you normally go through? Yeah, great question for me. There is no simple answer because it varies in length. I've done books that take a year, year and a half, uh, depending on when you officially count the start and the stop. I did one recently that I spent four years on and off. Um, It's not what I worked on every day, but for the bulk of those four years, that's what I was doing. Uh, So it varies. And then um, what was the other question? I'm sorry, Dan, you said how long it takes to do one.
0: How long it takes and then maybe how many versions
1: or or rough draft edits happen. Thank you. So uh, writers do this all different kinds of ways. Some writers write through the whole manuscript and then rough draft and come back to it and start at the beginning again. I'm not capable of that. I wish I were sometimes, but I edit and edit and edit and rewrite and rewrite and rewrite as I go. So that makes it a much slower process for me. But I just... I don't have it in me to do it the other way. I I, I wish I could try it the other way sometime, um, but I, I just can't do it. So as I'm writing, I've come to learn that the delete button is one of my best friends in the world. And I do a lot of deleting, a lot of moving, a lot of rewriting. Uh, sometimes in the case of the season of life book, for example, I was several months in before I realized that what I was doing just wasn't working. The overall framework, the approach I was taking. And it's painful, man. You gotta to tear apart what at that point was probably five or six chapters that I felt pretty comfortable with. I realized in their totality, I wasn't comfortable with them at all. Uh, And I, and I had to scrap a lot of that and, and really use that delete button and reframe what I was doing. So it varies.
0: Wow. That's really interesting to me because I know as a player, sometimes in in a practice or a game, you wish you could go back and redo something, but that's what post practice workouts are or pre-practice workouts are to to fine-tune skills. I didn't realize or think about it from a writer's perspective. You've got a big vision idea that you want to get to, but it takes multiple times. And sometimes, as you mentioned, maybe you just scrap it all over knowing that end goal, you have to get there a different way. How frustrating can that be? Or when it it gets finished, how fulfilling is it that you finally got it the way you want it?
1: Well, both of those things, it can be incredibly frustrating. It can also be uh, very fulfilling, although, you know, another another, I think, fairly standard uh, piece to being a writer. I know it has been for me and I love having conversations with other writers. And I have found this to be the case for many other writers as well, is that you're never really completely satisfied with what you've done. You just get to the point where it finally has to be handed in. And, you know, if you're going to write a book, that you know you want it to actually be published someday so there has to be that cutoff point but you know attending to that man if you come back and and read it later whether it's months later or years later that can be a really painful experience too because uh you can't go back and edit it's those words are those words they're there on the page uh hopefully for a long time and uh i i guess for me Uh, As long as I don't look back on it and feel that it's terrible, then that's kind of okay, like I can move on to the next, because I'm never going to be satisfied the stories I've been so fortunate. In working on stories that are so incredible that I know deep down inside me. I'm not talented enough talented enough to tell them the way I feel like they deserve to be told so I just kind of muddle my way through do the best I can and uh, hopefully if it can reach people and uh, some way touch people's lives, that's really the most important thing to me.
0: Well, you've written a book, Season of Life, that I've mentioned uh, a couple times in this podcast that has touched me. I've read it multiple times. Uh, I've gifted it to other people at times. Uh, I think it's a book that any young student athlete um, needs to read. I also think it's even more important that any young coach that is getting into coaching and wanting to learn more about an approach to impact student athletes needs to read. I'm fascinated to hear a little bit more about um, the background of the story. If we can, if you can share it from your perspective, how it all came to be, um, because, like I said, it is a tremendous story.
1: Well, thank you, Dan, and thank you for sharing it with others. As I know you have through the years, that really means a lot to me. And you know, it's a story. It's one of those, as I mentioned earlier, that I never set out to write. What happened was. Uh, gosh, it was 2001, 20 years ago now, uh, I saw a little item in the newspaper at breakfast one morning. For me, it was the Washington Post. I was living in D.C. on Capitol Hill at the time. Little item that said uh, the state of Maryland had passed funding to tear down, to demolish Memorial Stadium in Baltimore. Memorial Stadium is where the Baltimore Colts and the Baltimore Orioles used to play. uh, The Baltimore Colts before they moved away to Indianapolis, of course. And, for me, that was, a, that was a tough moment to see that in the newspaper because as a kid, I was a ball boy for the Baltimore Colts. I spent years doing that, uh, working with, living with, and traveling uh, with an NFL team for the summers of my childhood. It was just an incredible life-changing experience. And Memorial Stadium was like my childhood, home away from home. So I got this idea uh, to write something about that. I didn't know what it would be. It was just gonna be a one-day thing. Uh, I had a friend who worked at the Baltimore Sun as a sports editor at the time, and he was kind enough indulge me with an assignment a little one day thing i was going to walk through the stadium one last time before it was torn down and write a piece a reminiscence piece about those childhood days as a ball boy and went up there on a cold january morning walked around and by the time i was done after an hour or so had no idea what i was going to write about this tired old collection of concrete and brick for me it was the men who brought that place to life who were so special so i took off on this journey i ended up spending three months i i called it dialing for colts I wanted to find all these guys that played for the colts when i was a kid these guys i had lived with and worked with and uh and there were 212 of them it turned out a man named joe Ehrman was the 85th guy i reconnected with after all those years and when i came to learn what joe was doing uh, he was now a minister in baltimore pastor of a very large church he had been incredibly impactful in the city with all kinds of programs and as i spent time with him reconnected and learned what he was doing this program called building men for others and coaching high school football on the side, I was really drawn to that to learn more about it. And ultimately I did. I went up to spend a day with him at their first practice and was so blown away by what I saw and heard and experienced and felt uh, with Joe and Biff, the head coach and those boys, that I ended up spending the whole season with them and writing a book about it.
0: And some of those stories that are within the context of the larger story are are very, impactful as far as talking about how much influence a coach can truly have on a young student athlete on a team in getting them to understand the bigger picture of what's truly important because at the end of the day everybody wants to look up at the scoreboard and see more points or runs or, or whatnot on their side yeah but years later maybe that's not everything that you remember tell us a little bit more about some of the the life lessons that Joe tried to impart and you
1: shared in your book? Yeah. Well, let's look at that in two ways. Let's first look at the word coach, uh, which is such a powerful word and and coaches impact so many young people in, in our culture. So, but if we go back and because I love reading and writing words, we'll go back to the 1500s, the first usage of the word coach in the English language, it was in England and it was a horse drawn carriage but it wasn't just any old kind of carriage. It had a specific purpose. And that was to convey or transport people of importance from where they are to where they want to be, need to be, or ought to be going. Well, I would make the argument all these years later, and this is what Joe and Biff believe as well. That's exactly what coaches, sports coaches, especially youth sports coaches ought to be doing in America today, taking our people of importance, our young people from where they are to where they want to be, need to be, or ought to be going. That has nothing to do with, as you said, points on the scoreboard or wins and losses and state titles and all that. Those things are fine. They're good and they're great. We all love being part of that, but that's not really at the core of what these guys are doing with their coaching. Then the other piece is this program called Building Men for Others, which I mentioned briefly a few moments ago. That's the real reason Joe was coaching. Joe's program, Building Men for Others, is all about teaching boys how to be men of substance and impact in this world, as opposed to all the other junk they're getting out there. So What Joe does is he tears down what he calls the three lies of false masculinity, replaces them with his own definition of masculinity. He calls it strategic masculinity. And that's really what they do the entire season, is teaching those boys what it means to be a man, what it really ought to mean to be a man in our culture. Sounds
0: like he's continued to have a tremendous impact, not just on that one year or so that you spent with that program. Uh, I was lucky enough to have some really good, great coaches in my, in my life and in my upbringing, um, whether it was a eighth grade basketball coach, my high school coach, Coach Few at Gonzaga, um, coaches that really kind of stood for great things and, and really pushed you to, to go beyond your limits. Um, when you looked at the book and the impact that it has had on others, you've had many chances to speak. Uh, about your experiences in in your work, Uh, I'm sure not just across the country, but across the world. Is there one maybe experience that you had where you could share about your book that you just shook your head when it was over is like, I can't believe this one trip to go look at this stadium that was about to be torn down has led to all this?
1: Wow. Yeah, wow. I haven't thought of it that way, but the immediate easy answer is anything that has to do with a father and son. So it wouldn't be one isolated incident more so it would be that ultimately for me, that season of life journey on a personal level became about my relationship with my dad. And so I wrote about my dad in the book. That was a really important part of that of that journey for me. Where, where the journey with Joe Ehrman took me was to my dad's home in New York, to a conversation uh, we had Thanksgiving weekend of 2001. And so for me, the biggest thing, first of all, writing about that was one of the toughest things I've ever done in my life and I never would have done it uh without my dad being okay with it we talked very directly about that i never would have put that in the book my dad was amazingly courageous and he said to me you know i would never ask you not to do that because me doing that would be very selfish not because of anything you're writing but because of not because of anything in your life as a writer but because of who am i to take that away from some other father and son if you share that in a book someone else might have a chance to experience the same thing that we're experiencing now so because that was my dad's decision. I had so much respect for him related to that. Um, Every time in these, all these years now that I hear from a father, son, uh, either a father or a son, or both about their takeaway from the book and how they've used it in their own relationship, you know, that just obviously would stand out for me. That, that I can't tell you how many times I've been sitting at my desk alone, uh, crying, you know, just in tears of, uh, you know, being so touched, being so moved by something I've read by a father or a son or both. So that's the easy one. And then some of the others, just some of the other events, you know, one that jumps out, Uh, Joe and I had a great opportunity to work with a man named uh, Kim Nuxall and his dad, Joe Nuxall. Anyone in Cincinnati will know about them from the Cincinnati Reds. And then Sean Casey, who was an all-star player for the Reds for years. Um, Working with them, we put together a number of events in Ohio, as we've done around the country, but just working with those guys, man, they're like season of life MVPs to me, that the way we were able to reach people, the way um, someone like the Nuxall family and Sean Casey were able to take those messages in the book and and adopt them and then adapt them to their own needs of their communities and through their sports teams in in a whole city like that. It was incredible for me to be able to watch the tentacles of that thing reach other people by watching readers, readers like you, readers like Sean and the Nuxall's, and, and they've been doing this around the country, and for me, that probably gives me the most joy as well.
0: Well, Jeffrey, I loved our conversation. I appreciate uh, getting to know a little bit more about your background. Uh, I'm excited to read this book one more time uh, as Season of Life. As I've mentioned, I've read it multiple occasions, usually during the college basketball season. With the flights I have, I have a right. chance to dive into some books either for the first time or revisit them. This will be on my list to revisit very soon. But I, I thank you. Uh, from the from the bottom of my heart for joining because this book has impacted me and I loved getting a chance to talk a little bit on it.
1: Dan thank you and and you know let me just take a second if I may to celebrate all the good things you've done through the years you know that's been kind of neat to see uh someone like you embrace these messages in this book and uh now to connect this way and be able to share this time I've really enjoyed it so thank you.
0: Well thanks again appreciate you joining uh have yourself a great Christmas season.